welcome all of you. Um, I'm very proud to stand here together with Maike, head of ITVA Education. My name is Andrea Postuma. I'm from the Creative Europe desk in the Netherlands. I think Maike started a year ago after the ITVA Academy where we were drinking a glass of wine or two and you were so passionate about kids and dogs. And you really made me enthusiastic. <laughs> so I thought Creative Europe, I'm not sure if you all know Creative Europe, but it's the EU support system for the audiovisual industry, money and, and more to offer. And then we thought this is the perfect event where we combine uh, the Creative Europe desk families. So we do it all together with my colleagues here. They're all sitting here in the audience as well. And I'm very excited actually. So. I give the floor to you. Thank you, Andrea. I'm excited too. I lost my voice, but I have a mic now. Thank you for supporting us since last year and um, sharing the enthusiasm for the genre. Uh, for the people who know me, um, I don't have to introduce, but um, I'm also the programmer for the Kids and Dogs Selection this year again, which is a competition with an award handing out tonight, so I'm very proud. It's getting more mature, more people involved, and um, I think the family is getting bigger. And I met some um, siblings during the past years, I guess, uh, from Norway and Outlook, of course, is involved and MPO Sales is a, a supporter for years already. So I'm proud to have the industry talk here at ITVA, um, a daily talk actually, today focusing on the genre. So um, let's continue this and make it even better in the future. Is the mic still on? And make it even more in the future because I think tomorrow, uh, this morning, we had a really nice pitch at the forum um, from Tongue Cutters, our project, and um, I would really like to have more of that in the future as well. So enjoy your afternoon and um, see you hopefully next year. Thank you. So good afternoon, everyone. Fantastic to see a full house and a great crowd showing up for, for this uh, afternoon sessions. My name is Ove Rieshoi Jensen and I work for the organization EDN, European Documentary Network. And I have the pleasure of taking you through this afternoon. As Micah said, we'll have an industry talk focusing on how we can make children's documentaries, how we can make them better, and how we can maybe also uh, collaborate across borders and send them across borders so uh, more children get actually better documentaries to, to watch. So uh, we have lined up a program uh, this afternoon with, uh, as you can see already, a panel who is eager to go and tell a little bit about their work and their experience in working with children's documentaries. Um, we will do it so that we'll ask each of them to do a little presentation, a little talk. And when we have been through uh, all three talks, we will uh, open up for a little bit of a discussion and a debate and also take questions uh, from you. But we will, uh, we will take the liberty to be very undemocratic in the beginning and uh, just uh, do one presentation after the other. As you can see, uh, we have a, a really distinguished panel lined up. Um, you have the names up there, Kaiser Creek from NPO Sales over there. You have Paul Tyler sitting next to her. You have Anita from Santa Nusant, and you have uh, Salma from Outlook. I think before we go uh, move ahead, give them all a really, really warm welcome. Huh? So uh, the three presentations that you will see today will really be shooting at, uh, at working with, with children's documentaries from, from all angles. Uh, we'll start in a second with the first case study, uh, and then we'll move on and, and cover uh, different topics. Um, the first, as I said, a case study. Uh, the next one, a little overview of, of sales. And then we'll, at the end, look at ways and methods for, for working with, with children's documentaries and, and how to enhance them. 
So a warm welcome to all four of you. And uh, I think we'll just go straight into it. Anita, you uh, are here as a Norwegian producer who already have gained some good experience in working with, with children's documentaries. And I know you have prepared a little presentation around the project that you have recently worked with and still is working with, uh, I guess, the, the Sports Kids series. So I'll give the floor to you and you'll take us through a little bit uh, information about the, the production and the, the behind the scenes look at it. Welcome, Anita. Is it working? Yeah. So my name is uh, Anita. I'm from Santenusan, Norwegian production company, um, which I run together with my colleague Tone Gratjo, she's here in the audience too. Um, we have been working with the uh, production of documentaries for 10 years for the national and the international uh, market. And uh, two years ago, I was um, called by the uh, Monika Hellström, producer from Fine Cut Fruit in Denmark. And she asked me if we wanted to join a Nordic collaboration uh, between three countries to produce uh, a series of um, documentaries for kids. Um, we have done that. The, this year we have three of them in the, um, in the program, which is uh, great. And um, first of all, before I start to speak, I think we should uh, have a look at the trailer. for a young audience um, and I think it's quite clear that uh, a young audience also need to see artistic and good documentaries um, in many countries and in my country in Norway there's a really lack of uh, good good artistic documentaries for a young audience um, I mean the, the broadcaster normally make them themselves within the channels uh, but you hardly say see anything in the cinemas and um, they are also produced uh, with very low budgets. Um, so my aim when I, when I got this question to be part of this uh, collaboration, it was that we have to do something really special. It has to be artistic, good, uh, high quality documentaries, uh, which can compete uh, together with fiction films and animation. Um, that's also why bringing in uh, really good direct directors, as uh, Viktor Kosakowski has directed one of our films, um, to bring in this, um, um, this artistic value uh, for also the kids. 
uh, and also to bring in the status of the children films, to make these films as important as other films for grown-ups. Um, yeah, I will take you through the kind of um, very interesting and very a little bit complicated um, production. <coughs> so um, we were three companies from Norway, Sweden and Denmark. We were going to produce two films each. So one film from our own country and uh, um, one film, yeah, with five different directors. We had one from Denmark who did two and then we had uh, Norwegian directors, one from Poland and uh, Victor from Russia. So yeah, here you see the films from six different countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. So this is Ruth, Fencing Champion, Orishella, uh, uh, Chapter 11, and the Sumo Rest. Um, yeah. Um, what we really wanted to do was to uh, do um, a co-production, and the plan from the beginning that was we're going to co-produce the films um, across, across the borders. Um, it sounded quite easy in the beginning, but it, it wasn't, <laughs> and uh, it ended up uh, a little bit more complicated. But um, how is this? Here is the structure. So the two Norwegian films, um, both of them were co-produced with Sweden, and uh, one of them were co-produced uh, with Denmark. Um, yeah, take you through the. So and. There you see the two films from Sweden, one of them co-produced with uh, Norway and Denmark, and one of them only with Swedish money. And then the Danish films uh, with um, co-productions in uh, Sweden for one of the films. That is how it looks like. <laughs> the blue ones are the Norwegian ones, the red are from Denmark, and, and the yellow one from, from Sweden. So this was also due to, of course, different rules within the different um, uh, film institutes. Um, we also had, uh, in Norway, we had this uh, cultural test who made it difficult for us to co-produce films outside Europe. So that's why we couldn't co-produce the film from Japan, and we couldn't co-produce the film from South Africa. Uh, at the Danish uh, Film Institute, uh, they went in with one of the Norwegian films and one of the Swedish films. Um, we also had, for, for the other Norwegian film, we had quite good Danish. We had a Danish GOP, we had a Danish uh, sound designer, also because the director, he used to make all his films from Denmark. Uh, but in the end, uh, we didn't manage to, to, to get the co-production. Uh, I still kept um, the DOP and the sound designer and, and the actually went much higher the budget because it was not um, really good. In Sweden, we had great support because they really wanted to support all the films, which was great. But it also made it quite complicated because they went in with very little money, so it was kind of difficult to we have to find kind of the right way of 
of working with Sweden uh, with the amount of money and it was also very big job for the co-producer because there were like five different contracts and uh, also a lot of uh, own investment uh, for them. <coughs> yeah, so, um, and here comes the financing, <laughs> which also, um, see that the, uh, the blue ones are, are financing within Norway. Uh, so you see both the films, the Norwegian films, are supported by the Norwegian Film Institute uh, and NRK, super. Um, both of them have Nordic financing with the Green, uh, green uh, to Nordic Film and TV Fund. Uh, they all have, um, both of them have DR Ultra, so it was <laughs> NRK and DR uh, who bought the whole series. In Sweden, we did manage to get a broadcaster on board. Uh, and they have done a theatrical re release there. Um, and yeah, as you see, Varishela managed to get the Danish Film Institute. Uh, both of them have the Swedish uh, Film Institute. So the Danish financing um, was the other way. Both of the films has NRK. One of the films has Swedish Film Institute. Both of them has DR. Um, and both of them has Nordic films. And Sweden, <laughs> uh, both of them have the Swedish Film Institute. Yeah, both of them should have DR Ultra. I thought it was a wrong thing. Well. And then Nordic Film And then Art Junior came on board um, <laughs> after we pitched her last year. That was uh, great news. and. Um, we did a co-production with them, Outlook, which Outlook handled. Yeah, and so are the budgets. <laughs> they are like, yeah, so there are six different budgets with six different financing plans. Um, I will not go all, but uh, the average is around 200,000 film. Yeah, a lot of the, I mean, all the, all the films has really good um, support from from uh, from the National uh, Film Institute, and also the Film and uh, Fund. I will just go through this very. Okay. What's the length of the film? They are uh, twenty-five minutes. Yeah. Also, DR uh, Ultra went in with development money, which was really crucial for us to be able to to start to collaborate, and which made it easier also to get in touch with um, good directors when you already have some money on board. Swedish. <coughs> Sorry? Yeah, because they did actually the whole production in the research. Yeah. So they only went on one one trip. That's why. We also did that on... Um, uh, here also we had 
quite high development, but we did all shooting almost in the development stage. Uh, and here also, yeah, the, all the film institutes and the <coughs> Here also a very high development budget, also did quite a lot of the shooting in the development. And there the total budget for 173,000. Then we had all these six films, mm, which was not going only going to be individual films, they were also going to be a series, um, which we also talked about, of course, from the early beginning. I mean, our goal was to make individual films, um, but also try to packet them together as a, as a series. And um, it was not, uh, of course, always easy. And our original plan was that the co-production would, would, would also make us uh, possible to work with more creative parts which could kind of wrap the film together or, or have the same composers, same sound designers. But of course, the, um, this, this was not uh, possible in the end. Um, so we, uh, we, what we did in the end was that the films will have separate, um, separate versions, and they also have one version which we have done something together. So we have some graphics, and we have some kind of uh, animated uh, front for each film, which make them, uh, for, for TV, when they screen it, they, they will be more as a series than, than one-offs. Um, so that's why we also made this design, both they have their design for each film, like here. Um, but also we made this um, series poster. And also the title we <laughs> discussed quite a lot. Um, I really don't like the title at all, and we really wanted to have more like in the uh, poetic or uh, title. I mean, the film is about sport at the average, but uh, it's really about um, uh, relationships, about father and son, mother and daughter, friendship, first love, um, which we didn't really manage to get out in the title. But when we tried it for children, they all really, what they wanted to see was, they want to see something about these sport kids. So we have to listen to our audience, of course, and uh, we ended up with uh, sport kids. Um, also, just to say something very short about distribution before Salma will, will, um, will talk more about that. Um, I think <coughs> it's been great to work with the films because they can work both on their own, but also together. And um, we are also doing different kind of distributions. We put, you can put the films together in two or three, depending on, on your audience. Um, we also have, um, in Denmark, they did uh, a voiceover for the film, so we can screen it for even younger kids who cannot, even, who cannot read yet. Um, and you can also um, uh, put them together in programs for festivals, like we did here, or, um, or for events. In Sweden, all the films have had the theatrical release in two different programs. 
and uh, in Denmark they screen the films uh, on different events together with uh, sport clubs. Uh, in Norway all the films will uh, be screened on in 2016 in the Youth Olympics uh, on a big outdoor screen um, and we are working on also theatrical release uh, in Norway. So they are, um, of course, they are complicated with all the films, but it also makes uh, more possibilities for the films. Um, and I hope also it can inspire other producers and uh, financiers also to try to help out to how it's possible to build a bigger community and to work across the borders uh, to to make more uh, films for for children and for a young audience. And I think that uh, for us nothing is more rewarding than uh, when you're sitting in the cinema with 500 kids who are watching the films and are clapping, screaming, uh, screaming and, and uh, cheering. So I think it's really something that uh, has made me really addicted and uh, I will continue and I hope also to bring in more people to work with this genre because it's really, really fun and really, really inspiring. Sam, uh, you're representing Outlook Film Sales and you are having the, the six films in, in the catalogue, <laughs> the series in your catalogue. Can you pick up a little bit on what Anita said in terms of working with the, with the films as a series or as a individual films and, and how does the how does it work for you simply on, on, on the market aspect? Um, yeah that I have I have to first of all I'm very, really proud that we represent this project in our catalog because Outlook is a sales agent known for independent creative uh, quality documentary. So it was a kind of an experiment <laughs> to step in into this project but I mean the, the risk was limited because we worked with very um, established production companies we knew already like Anita and Final Cut for Real, for example, we represented some uh, previous films from them. So we said, okay, let's um, let's just try it. Um, there is a high production value attached, and it's a series. And series is a format which works extremely well on TV at the moment. And it's also easier for us to place a series on TV than a single 30-minute version, because for kids, uh, feature versions are not working really on TV. That's what um, the feedback was from our buyers. So um, from the beginning on, we said, okay, series is fine, 30 minutes is fine, and we've, um, we promoted it that they can pick up single episodes from, from this um, series. But at the end, so far, everyone really went for the, yeah, for the whole series. So we didn't sell a single episode yet. What we do, where we feel um, it's easier to, to work with single episodes is on the festival side. So we, um, to my surprise, there are lots of festivals now developing a kids trend. So um, more and more festivals coming over. Oh, you have kids documentaries. So that's um, what we're looking for and what we're starting. So that was the good news. And from the festival side, um, also ITFA picked up three. I have to say, ITFA only picked up three parts because other um, some of the <laughs> of the episodes were already released in 2013. So um, that was a bit um, of a complicated side in the production process that we had, um, yeah, Chicago was already in Toronto Film Festival in 2013, and we had to, had to wait until now to release the whole, the whole um, series. So um, this is not um, the optimum <laughs> um, if you produce a series that um, you should um, 
for uh, Richard out one, one after the other in, um, within two years, so it would be better to have them all completed at one um, time, also for the, for the festivals, of course. Yeah, but it's, um, yeah, it was a complicated um, financing process. It's fine now, so we're very happy that we can release them here. So IFA picked up three episodes, and I do think that we're gonna um, continue traveling um, with single episodes and not with the whole um, series. In terms of the sales, can you talk a little yes. bit about uh, also the packaging? Because as, as Anissa just showed us, they, they have the individual artwork, and then there's also a version where the films are packaged with kind of uh, identical artwork. Yeah. Uh, how important is that in terms of branding and selling it? <laughs> I mean, in, this is a, a pretty specific case because you have different um, production companies and different directors directing. So uh, we, we, it's, we do both. I mean, we were very much um, involved in the artwork and um, it was a long process also because you had three production companies to agree on one um, specific artwork. Um, so, in terms of TV sales, we do promote uh, the series at once. Um, we still try to highlight the different directors working on these projects. Um, in terms of festivals, we promote them separately. Um, yeah, from I think you were asking also from, from the sales side, so as, as Anita already mentioned, um, we got Art on board. We, um, I mean, I have to say that we couldn't sell the film so far, but um, from also the moment before it, we were already talking to some broadcasters, so we got a Poland Discovery already. Um, we are in the middle of negotiations with Japan and China, but for all rights. The Estonian broadcaster came on board, and the Greece broadcaster already um, mentioned uh, initially strong interest. Uh, and we get a lot of interest that um, was also a bit of non-expected. Um, we didn't expect it like this um, from educational distribution companies. So they um, also want to take it serious and do more screenings because they feel um, it can work well in schools and uh, special screenings. And then they do dubbed version, which again would help us for the TV series, of course. Okay, we'll talk much more about the formatting and the series when we get back to the open discussion uh, a little later on. But for now, thank you very much. And that leads us, of course, to the next presenter. Welcome to you, Kaiser, representing NPO sales here in, in, the, in the, sorry, the Netherlands. And you will take us on a little tour about the, what you've been working with here in, in, in your sales company and how also a little peek into to market opportunities, in a sense. Okay, so uh, I know you have prepared a little presentation, so please uh, go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Kaiser Krieg. I'm head of sales at NPO Sales. Um, NPO is the umbrella organization of the Dutch public broadcasters. Uh, we sell a selection of documentaries, drama series, and youth programs produced and co-produced by the Dutch uh, broadcasters and Dutch independent producers. Uh, we have a large selection of youth documentaries, and we also represent the Dutch uh, youth docs in the Kids and Docs competition this year. Um, Um, I will explain you shortly the Dutch uh, public system. Uh, we have three public channels, well, if I can keep it short, MPO1, MPO2, MPO3. And we have ZEP, the daytime children's television channel on MPO3. Um, we have now eight main broadcasters that 
broadcast programs on these channels and we have a number of smaller Dutch broadcasters who make programs uh, and broadcast on the channels. Uh, almost all of the broadcasters uh, produce, co-produce Dutch youth talks and um, so uh, we have a big uh, selection of that. Um, I think that uh, the Netherlands uh, from origin uh, has a strong documentary tradition and I think the development of the youth doc comes from there. Uh, since 25 years, um, uh, the producers, filmmakers and commissioning editors have adopted the genre of the youth doc uh, and have developed it to what it is today, together with strong support of the Dutch Cultural Media Fund. Uh, the subject matters of our youth docs are uh, serious and are uh, more light. Uh, subject matters uh, can be about illness, about loss, about gender change, about bullying, but can also be about friendship, about sports, about uh, hobbies. Uh, I will tell you something about um, how youth docs are placed on uh, ZEP, on the channel. And then I will tell you something about how we do on the international market. I will show you two clips of two of our series. Uh, the youth channel ZEP is, uh, uh, exists since 2000 and is now a market leader in the Netherlands in all three target groups. That's 312, uh, 35 and 612. Um, we produce uh, 20 youth docs per year. Um, the channel money for that is 10,000 euros per youth doc. Uh, so that's uh, 200,000 euros per year. That's 100% Dutch produced and it excludes uh, the money from the Dutch Cultural Media Fund. Um, the docs are uh, scheduled on Saturday and Sunday afternoon um, between one o'clock and three o'clock. Uh, the ratings have not been very high, so uh, to give the youth docs an extra push, as of January, they will be broadcast on Saturday morning, uh, we have a very uh, good slot, uh, ZEP Live. It's one of the prime time slots on ZEP. And it starts from quarter to nine to half past 10. <coughs> and there the youth doc will be presented in a more embedded manner. It has a presenter, ZEP Live. So uh, there will be four blocks of programming and each block uh, will have one youth doc. And the presenter will do an interview either with a person from the documentary or will pay uh, will uh, address the theme of the documentary so to give it more of uh, to give it an extra push and he'll also refer to set uh, extra that's the digital uh, uh, theme channel for youth so kids can watch youth more youth documentaries there and he will also um, refer to set echt gebeurt that's a our factual uh, platform Echt gebeurt literally means uh, what really happens. So uh, it's uh, it's uh, dedicated to factual uh, to youth documentaries. So there, children can screen over more than 300 youth docs, and they have uh, categorized it per theme. So uh, there's a theme: uh, history or sports, hobbies, family. Um, Echt gebeurt has also developed an educational program for teachers to use in the classroom. And they have young children reporters from all over the country that make films for the platform. Zep uh, Echt is hosted by VPRO. Uh, the chief editor is here as well, Melanie van Lange is in the audience. 
and uh, but it's co of course a cooperation with all the Dutch public channels, and they also work closely with the ITVA, with Sinekit, with the media fund, with festivals, with museums. Uh, if we move to the international market, uh, our youth dogs do extremely well on festivals. We win many uh, international awards. Uh, we have some titles like the beautiful film Flying Anna about a young girl with Schilderlaterit syndrome. I think it was uh, invited to over 50 festivals. And we have another uh, festival hit, it's called Giovanni and the Water Ballet, about a young boy who wants to uh, be in a synchronized swimming competition. It's a very beautiful film. Uh, it won a lot of awards uh, already as well. But uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, translate to successful sales. And I think uh, there are very few dedicated slots of, to, of youth documentaries at this moment. Uh, so uh, it's difficult to, to sell youth dogs abroad. Um, I will tell something about uh, TV rights on the next slide. Uh, as Selma just mentioned, the educational market is very uh, important for youth dogs. Um, in Scandinavia, it's a big market, and also in Germany. But in Germany, you have to deliver a German version. Uh, they pay between, uh, for educational rights, the, the fees are between 1,000 and 3,000 euros for a licensed term up to five to seven years. Um, for VOD rights and asphalt rights, uh, it's still very much at the beginning. Uh, what we find is that more platforms for kids program, programs are emerging, uh, but it's very small budget, so right now it's more of a promotion tool that we would use, or we would do a pilot with a platform with one dog and see how it works, and the platforms uh, also need their budgets to make their own language versions. So that's still very much um, at the beginning. Uh, to look a bit at the rights that we sell. So this is per youth dog. Uh, so already made, finished uh, youth dog. Uh, we sell in Scandinavia, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, Germany. Again, here for Germany, um, sometimes it needs to be a German version, sometimes they make their own version, depending on the broadcaster. Um, for English-speaking territories, uh, you need to deliver an English-narrated version. And um, for English-speaking territories in Asia, um, they're mostly looking for a youth series with a strong educational link. So it's very difficult to sell uh, the short, more cinematographic uh, documentaries there. It really needs to have that strong link with education. Uh, I would like to show you a trailer of Just Kids. It's a beautiful series by Econ Television. We now have <coughs> 21 episodes of 20 minutes. There's a small mistake in the, in the slide. It has won many awards already uh, all over the world. And last night I heard there's a new award for Rom Romania. Uh, the chief editor, Saskia Willinga, she is here too in the audience. I think uh, she's doing a fantastic job. The films are beautiful. And uh, ECON has uh, developed an international educational uh, program. So they're working with a number of countries in schools, on festivals. 
and so far we sold it to France, Germany, and Sweden, and uh, they will produce eight more next year uh, episodes. And last Friday there was a premiere here of some new episodes, and it was just a heartwarming premiere. This beautiful film on a young uh, Syrian boy who came here as a refugee with his uncle and cousins, and uh, he had to leave his parents. They they would arrive a year later, and it's such a important film. I should I think it, this film like this should be broadcast now in uh, at least in Europe. And luckily he could be present at the premiere with his family. So that's an example of a very urgent uh, subject matter. Um, uh, one year without parents, I think, yeah, the English title here. Yeah. And uh, well, we have it subtitled soon, so it will be available on our site. Um, let's look at the trailer. Afghanistan and I work in a sensuality center of Amazon. On this moment, I am for the future of your work. Well, yeah, I'm doing a bit different than others. This is children without autism, and this is children with autism. What is going to happen? I'm going to be myself. Also, they have tested me at school. Ik denk dat ze me gevangen genomen hebben en mijn moeder, omdat we geen paspoort of papieren hebben. Maar het is mooi dat verdadere realiteit en hier staat passen. Ik ben Mijn moeder is altijd wel levendig, maar we staan niet. Maar dat is niet waar. Ik besta wel. I want to show you is um, uh, of our series Full Proof by NTR, that's the educational broadcaster. Uh, it's an interesting discussion if this is a youth documentary, documentary series or not. Uh, I was talking to Maike about it before uh, we started. But also my colleagues at the channel management say we don't call this a youth doc, but in terms of sales we do uh, pitch it as a youth documentary series. It's a series uh, of uh, short uh, uh, documentaries about science experiments done by kids and um, NTR uh, co-produced it with uh, got funding in the Netherlands from a foundation and co-produced it with UR in Sweden and Kabbalah in Chile and uh, so far we sold it to six countries and we're now negotiating with Russia they're going to buy it and 
uh, in Latin America, there's strong interest. So you see, again, what I mentioned earlier, uh, if it has a strong educational link, uh, it's very sellable. And, uh, well, let's watch the trailer. around the world with experiments. Children from different countries do experiments with everyday objects. With a cork, a balloon, a glass of water, their own bike, or their father's rusty old car. They show how much fun science can be. The children have an impressive assistant to help them. The strongest man or woman in their neighborhood. If you want to know what you can do with magnets, what service tension is or how to shoot a rocket into space? Watch Foolproof and be inspired. Foolproof is filmed all over the world and the experiments are always connected to the location. Dylan from French Guiana experiments with the rust on his father's car. Tristan from Holland can do all kinds of stunts on his bike and experiments with balance. And Marie discovers facts on surface tension. Foolproof is an inspiration to viewers from all over the world because the laws of nature are the same for everyone. my uh, talk. Uh, if you uh, would like to screen uh, our youth talks with English subtitles, you can create a login on our website. And if you need any references to Dutch uh, broadcasters or producers, uh, let me know. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Kaiser. Just a couple of, of questions from my side. You talk a lot about uh, the link to, to educational use. Does that mean that the content itself links to, to an educational use, or is it also important to, to create some kind of educational material around the films? Um, I think um, uh, for foolproof, uh, there is, is also a, uh, an educational format for it to use. So I think it would be both that you learn something from the doc documentary and there's always uh, school material being produced around it. So there are lessons, lesson plans and yes. ways to incorporate yeah. it. I think that's always good advice to have to have in mind that if you develop these things around the programs, it's easier to, to sell them and incorporate yes, them. Yes, yeah. In, in, in and as I said, just kids as well, they have an educational uh, format uh, internationally, yeah. You mentioned a little bit uh, also this uh, online platform that you're running for for, um, for factual uh, children's programs. Can you say something about the split and how that develops? How much are, are kids still watching the programs on TV and how much are they watching it online? Um, well, I think uh, Melanie, the chief editor, might be able to say something about uh, people visiting the site. Um, I'm not sure what the division is actually. Yeah. Do you know? Yes, well, um, normally, it, uh, of course, television is still a mass medium, so uh, most of the uh, viewers are by television. Uh, but there's a very important week in the year, once a year, that's the week of media literacy, that's right now. 
and um, then we uh, then we gain more than 100,000 page views in a week. So you have to search for uh, connections, uh, otherwise to to bring the children to your platform. Yeah. That's yeah, like a, a promo on television or uh, uh, being. Have a cooperation with other uh, institutions. That's very important. And create a context where they watch them. Uh, I guess is also the lesson. Yeah. You had a quick comment or? Is, um, it, is it real documentaries? That's the kind of discussions that yeah. always starts a civil war. So. <laughs> I think it's a good. It's always a good discussion. It's um, yeah, of course, it's reenacted. So in that sense, you don't call it uh, call it. A yeah. Is is there a question from the NTR uh, to the directors? you have to make this kind of format or are they free to have uh, their own, to choose their own format? I think the chief editors of NTR, they, uh, before they uh, scripted the, the scientific experiments that they wanted to do yes. and find children and... Uh, and so the, uh, then they, in the end they are free to make their own autonomous documentary, that's my question. Well, they, work with, they work within the format, so yeah. I guess yeah, we yeah, have to stay yeah. within yeah. the format. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Kaiser, we uh, will come back to, to some of the points we raised later on when, when we go to the open discussion. But thank you very much for this introduction. Thank you, Kaiser. And from uh, two very concrete market point of view, I have the feeling that we move to something a little bit uh, more abstract and idea-based. Uh, Paul, you're here. You're representing uh, your company Handling Ideas. And this is what, what you're going to talk a little bit about now. How can we actually maybe do different methods and, and work with children's documentaries uh, uh, differently and how can we reach audiences different. So, Paul, welcome to you. Thank you for being with us. And, uh, yes. Hello, uh, is this working? Right, so typically uh, two women stand up before me and promote very beautiful things. A man stands up and promotes himself. Um, so, um, I'll try and also include some other stuff um, as well as well as talking about myself. So, um, yes, my name is Paul Tyler. I'm based in Copenhagen, but you can probably tell by my, by my plummy tones that I'm from England. Um, but I have been living in Denmark for 10 years now, which means I'm fluent in excuses for not being able to speak the language. Um, so I think one of the, was, what was very apparent from watching the two presentations before, it's always easy, isn't it, to come in afterwards and to pick up on what other people have said, is that there was definite proof of artistic quality in what we saw there. Um, there was proof there from uh, um, Neda regarding the financing model, a very interesting model, very complex in her prezi presentation there. Um, and uh, there was proof of distribution, potential for distribution. There was proof of awards, of festivals. And I think that one of the things, and it was kind of almost touched upon just as one of the last questions there, which is about the audience and about what is the proof of the audience. And, and I think this is really what's going to be key. I hope that something that I'm going to be pointing towards, which is this is the big thing that's changing now, which is that actually we can 
we can do all these things. They're pretty inc incredible. And, I, and I'm not going to touch at all upon the artistic integrity of these works because <coughs> I think it's incredibly high. I think that the biggest thing that we are challenged with is how do we get to the audience because that is the mechanism that is changing. So um, we're going to be talking um, about uh, documentary makers. Um, I'm not a documentary maker. Um, I, I never really have been, so I don't know why I'm here. Um, I'm somebody that helps documentary makers. Um, I, ten years ago, uh, I left Children's BBC. Uh, I've been at the BBC for 12 years. I spent eight years in Children's. Sounds like a prison sentence, doesn't it? But it was wonderful. Um, but I, I was there, um, and, and I continue to work with program makers and a whole range of people, not just documentary makers, but also a feature film across uh, Europe. Um, now, you might recognize this. It's, it's a bit of technology, and it's a bit of technology that's helped um, people to tell stories for, for many, many years. And it's something that we um, use all the time, and uh, we're very good at. I, I, I don't include myself on that, but I, I hope and I presume you are, and some of the evidence was already there uh, shown to us. And what's happened over the last 100 years, I don't need to remind you, but I might as well, um, is that we have um, created fantastic work through television, through film, through literature. Uh, we have uh, created beautiful genres, different types of formats, ways by which we can pre present stories, documentaries to our audience. And then this crazy thing came along called digital, or the internet, or new media, or whatever you want to call it, where suddenly the audience was connected You've seen a billion presentations like this. I'm going to whiz through it. But I just wanted to just remind us in a way of where we've been in the last 15 years. We've, we've suddenly been jolted. We've been shocked by this fact that suddenly we can connect to the audience in ways that we never, ever imagined. And of course, the audience can also connect to itself or to one another. And this has created sort of challenges. And it's also created some excitement. And I was certainly excited. Uh, 17 years ago when I was sent to uh, Hildersheim, um, which is supposedly 56 or 57 minutes away, depending on which route you take from Amsterdam, um, where I went and started working with the Media Park, uh, the Media Academy when I was at the BBC, because we was, we was sent, I was lucky to be sent to go and start developing formats that were going to try and work between television and the internet, because that was the big new thing, right? Um, and I developed a show called Bamzuki. Four years later, I've turned grey, but I managed to get the, the programme out. Uh, it wasn't a documentary, it was a game show, but it was a game show that was 100% um, the product of user-generated content through the web. So I was very conscious about uh, what it was like to try and engage with the audience. Uh, bear in mind, this is one year before this thing called Facebook, which some of you might be on, uh, emerged. So I was quite proud of myself in a way of, of engagement with the audience. And of course, what happened was, was I turned into one of these people uh, and joined the many ranks of prophets that, that stood on stages like this and told everybody about what the future was going to behold, about uh, how certain industries were going to die and certain industries were going to bloom and how startups were going to rule the world and everybody was going to look like people working in San Francisco. And, and I think that worked for a little bit. Um, and I hate people like this now, so that's why I'm whizzing through these slides. Um, <laughs> And we were told, weren't we? We were constantly being told that change is the only constant. And this is what you get if you Google change is the only constant. Uh, you get lots of slides which have not been made for previous presentations. Um, but I think what's really apparent is, is, that, um, is that whenever I go to a, a, a workshop, a, a conference, a seminar, 
I see this broadening, this broadening of what we're supposed to be doing. Um, suddenly we're talking about interaction, we're talking about uh, going well beyond simply the art of storytelling. And I think what it does is it raises this fundamental question, which is a really difficult question, and it's a question that often I want to just scream from the back of the room to the organisers of every conference I go on, which is, I should have inserted the word, what bloody industry are we in? Because it is so confusing sometimes. Sometimes I often think that we're not in, even in audio-visual content media production anymore. We seem to be doing everybody else's work. So it's a really difficult question to answer sometimes. What industry are we in? But maybe, um, maybe we, we shouldn't try and answer that question. Um, maybe we should ask ourselves different questions, and that's what I'm going to come on to. So this slide represents a particular project which I haven't asked the permission of uh, to talk about, but I'm going to do anyway because it's a beautiful project and some of you might know about it. Um, it's produced by a woman called Emmy Oost uh, from Belgium, um, and uh, it's not a children. It's about children, but it's not necessarily for children. Uh, it's a project that she's been developing and getting financed. Uh, it's called Emergency Exit, and it's basically about um, children uh, who are lost in refugee camps in sub-Saharan Africa. So the idea is is that she was very conscious of the fact that a lot of children go into these refugee camps. These refugee camps are huge, 25, 50,000 people. And the children are often lost. They're not orphans because they do have parents. It's just that they've been separated from their parents. And um, what she and her uh, good um, friends and colleagues came up with the idea was, why don't we give uh, technology to these children through mobile phones? Because there are a lot of mobile phones in these camps. And why don't we get them to um, try and find their parents through a kind of search engine that is based more on some sort of visual recognition rather than text? It's a very beautiful idea. And then they would then document the process. So she went around looking for financing for both the documentary and also the technology. But what happened was suddenly everybody got more interested in the technology than the documentary. And suddenly she had a bit of an identity crisis. Like, what the hell am I? Am I a technologist? Am I an enabler? Am I somebody that suddenly creates social good? Or am I a documentary maker? Am I a storyteller? And I really like this because I said to her, well, what does it matter? You know, I mean, you can be whatever you want to be, surely. And I think this is one of the biggest questions that suddenly media makers are challenged with, which is um, the question of why do you want to do this project? Because, you see, before digital came along, we could hide behind the camera. We could tell good stories because hopefully we're extremely good at telling good stories. And when I say hide, that's a bit mean in a way because I think... In a way, the storyteller could turn around and say, you know what, I'm very, very good at telling stories, and that's where I play my role. But the problem with digital is, is that it's actually reduced the distance between you and the audience and you and the subject matter. So suddenly you can, if you want, you can have a different role. But maybe that isn't the role that you want to play. But it's certainly a question, it's certainly an answer to this question, which drives you to think about whether or not you want to be a storyteller, I'm not going to say just a storyteller because that implies that it's lower, but a storyteller and a very good storyteller, or do you actually want to do something else? So I have this theory, and it's, it's not that well baked, so don't push me too hard on it, but I, I, it's, I'm going to throw it at you anyway. I think basically, um, I think there are a couple of things here. I think, I think when we create content, we can be form-led or we can be impact-led. 
What I mean by that, and I'm sure it's going to get some of you slightly annoyed, but that will start a good debate, I'm sure, is that some people are form-led. I love making television shows. I love making films. I want to make a film. I want to make a television show. I want to write a book. And that is fantastic. Please, believe me. I think that is fantastic. It is fantastic to be driven by the form, to be driven by the constraints of genre, to actually excel and to be excellent within, be an auteur within that space. I think there are some other people who say, I want to make an impact. I want to change people's opinion. I want to create some kind of awareness. I want to challenge a theme. And then they then choose their form, their format, their method of delivery, in order to create the greatest impact. So what I would say is, is and this will get you going, is that I think when we're form-led, we are actually working to somebody else's strategy. Okay. So what do I mean by that? I think what I mean is, is that when we are form-led, if we are creating a TV series or we're creating a film, then in a way what we're doing is we are working to the financer or the commissioner's strategy because they are the one that holds the relationship with the audience. So the commissioner, let's say it's a commissioner of children's BBC, okay, well that's slightly confusing because I suppose it's in-house, but if you're an indie production company, you basically work to their strategy. You basically say, I have a good program for your channel because you want to connect to the audience. Clearly, the person creating the media is concerned with the audience, but they're still working to the strategy that is owned by the commissioner. But if you are impact-led, it's your strategy. It's about you saying, okay, I really want to change the way of thinking that young children have towards immigrants. And then you start thinking, right, and how am I going to do that? What channels, what platforms, what mechanisms am I going to use in order to bring about that awareness, to, to, to bring about that change of thinking. And suddenly it becomes your strategy. So your strategy is actually part of your creative. And this is the, I think this, this is the fundamental shift that we, we have when we start working with an impact-led approach rather than a form-led. Now, please be aware, they are exactly on exactly the same level. I measured it on PowerPoint. So I'm not suggesting that one is, is less worth than the other. I'm just trying to make a distinction between the two for anybody who wants to try and kill me. And of course, I'm saying it's strategy regarding the audience because some people will say, well, of course you're being strategic when you're form-led because you're being strategic in terms of the way by which you approach your commissioner. Of course you are. You're thinking about what turns them on, what's most likely for them to give you money. But I'm talking about strategy relating to the audience, those people that I hope that we're making content for. And of course, there's massive overlaps. Of course, it's a massive gray zone. There's huge overlaps between these spaces. But I think that this distinction still works. And you know what? It's a bit scary doing this, particularly to documentary makers. But if, 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 we're, going to be, if we're going to be sort of slightly corporate about this, we, we would argue that, in a way, the form-led is kind of like B2B. It's business to business. And the impact-led is business to consumer. Because actually, when listening to the talk, we just had, everything in a way is about business to business. It's about, when we talk about markets, it's, a, it's not about markets of consumers, as in the public, it's about markets of businesses, because we're selling, we're working in a business to business environment. But, the, but if you look outside and look at all the other industries, they realize what they're doing is they're shifting from business to business to business to consumer. Because if they don't, they start realizing that consumer to consumer networks are eating up our business. 
So, of course, um, I don't know if you know this chap. Uh, he's fantastic. Grayson Perry, you should definitely look him up. And he did a fantastic series on the BBC, um, which was uh, some, some wreath lectures, which uh, he basically challenged the whole notion of uh, the, the, the art world, the art establishment, and the way by which um, he's had enough. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, about the way by which we, um, uh, who curates taste? And he was, he was poking fun at suggesting that democracy had bad taste, when in actual fact he was arguing quite the opposite. It's definitely worth looking up, I, I assure you. So this was the bit of blurb that I hope all of you got, and hope the reason why you're all here. Um, and the bit that I'm most interested in is how do you handle different cultures, languages, and interests? How do you deal with a target audience that is part of a rapidly changing landscape? I didn't check my time when I started, by the way. What time did I start? Oh, good. God, fantastic. Right. Um, I can't tell if it's going up or down. Right, it's, it's going up. So this is, this is what I try and do, is that I try to help program makers handle um, the changing landscape out there in order for them to be able to maybe make an impact with an audience. And I work with both. I work with people that I would argue are form-led, and I work with people who are impact-led. I'll work with anybody who happily pays me. So. Um, and the word handle fits rather nicely, because my company is called Handling Ideas. Um, so let's just go back to that one time. So the question is, how do you handle different cultures, languages, and interests? How do you deal with a target audience that is part of a rapidly changing landscape? Well, I think the way you do it is you do what other industries do, which is consider the audience whilst developing. Now, the problem about that is, is that as soon as you start talking about the audience to some creative people, it's almost as if it's a dirty word. It's almost as if we're suggesting a dumbing down. We're almost suggesting that, oh, great, so what are you saying, Paul? We're just going to give the audience what they want. You know, we might as well go back to Roman times. You know, And we laugh at that, but actually that is a reaction that I hear quite a lot. And I think it's just the wrong question to be asking. Because to somehow suggest that the creative is such a fragile beast that if he comes close to the audience, that he or she is just going to sort of break into a million pieces is just absurd. We're quite happy about the relationship that we have with the B2B relationship. We don't see necessarily, we might complain, but we don't necessarily see that the commissioner or the financer is somehow reducing or diluting our creative ability. So why on earth should the audience do that? I do believe that we can have a relationship with the audience which actually enhances our creative ability rather than weakening it. And I think that the way that we do that is by looking at our concepts within a context, is to, is to understand that the work that we do sits within a context. And if we can try and understand that and if we can try and map that out, then we're in a much stronger position to be able to make something that's going to be relevant and engaging for our audience and can ensure that the beautiful things that these people are producing is actually going to get to the audience. So here we go. This is what I think normally happens. I think what we, have, what we do is we come up with ideas in the shower and then we go to work and we turn them into concepts. And when we turn them into concepts, we work through the various different themes, the subjects, the topics, the issues that all surround those concepts. And we try to understand all the thousands of different issues relating to that concept. And then we kind of filter it down, we funnel it down into some kind of media product, which we then distribute to our audience. There you go. That is the entire value chain of, of media industry summed up in, a, in, a, in, a, in three steps. 
But I think what we can do is that we can actually change the approach that we have if we want to be more successful at actually join the dots up between our concepts and our audience. And the way we do that is this, is that we actually we ask ourselves very, oh, I've changed in tone, I don't know what's going on. Um, we actually ask ourselves, what is the relationship between the audience and our concept? Well before we even think about making the concept into a, a form of media. Well before even deciding necessarily what form of media, what format, what channel, what platform we're going to create. It's basic research, of course it is. But it's more than research. It's more than just trying to find out about how we can develop content. It's, it's also about trying to understand the context. So what we do is we, we try to understand how does our audience already respond to the themes that we are exploring within our concept. And we start realizing that the audience actually have a number of different reactions and responses to the themes, the subjects, the issues that we're dealing with. And by doing that, we actually what we start doing is we start identifying touch points that our audience already have with the themes that we are dealing with. Because, for example, the sport um, program that we saw is we recognize that our audience is already contacted with sport. Clearly they do, and they have all sorts of interesting touch points. I thought it was very interesting that you talked about the Olympic um, uh, outlet that you're going to use in Norway. So you start recognizing, well, how do our audience already interact with sport, and where are the touch points? Where are the useful touch points to which we could use as particular channels or platforms or, or, or media in, by ways by which we can connect with them? And of course, once you've done that, you actually start realizing that your audience can be broken down into subgroups. And I don't mean subgroups where you just say seven to eight-year-olds, nine to 11-year-olds, and 12 to 15-year-olds. I'm talking about something that relates to your theme. You can actually start understanding that your subgroups of your audience can be broken down depending on how they respond to your theme. For example, the sport, you might have, well, there are children that are professional, well, not professional, but hardcore kind of uh, amateurs, and that there, there are those children that do it every other week, and those children that are armchair sports enthusiasts who don't know, do no sport but like to watch. That could just be three examples of the different subgroups you could be working with. So suddenly what we're doing is we're actually thinking about our audience in terms of the touch points that they already have with the theme around our concept, and we're also trying to break them down into subgroups before we've even necessarily decided whether or not we're going to make a TV series, a film, an internet um, web series, a radio program, or whatever. And then, of course, we can even then, then once we've understood who our subgroups are, we've understood the touch groups, uh, touch points, that's the point where we might even then start considering what media channels and platforms we're going to start using in order to be able to reach them. So it's a, just a different way round. It's a way round by which we can actually bring the audience closer to us earlier in the process, rather than making our incredible, beautiful thing, and then three years later, then suddenly going, right, how are we going to get it to them? So here's the health warning. Okay, the health warning, obviously, is I come here, I give you a talk, I tell you a stuff, and then, of course, I relate it to my own work because I'm here to make money, right? But the reason is, is because actually I believe very strongly in what I do to help other people in the way that they have to make their, or they want to make their, their, um, their, their programs. So this is what I do. I try to map out, I try to map out the ecosystem in which people, people's projects are going to sit in, in order for them to be able to actually develop their formats in the context of their audience.
That was a big clumsy sentence, wasn't it? So what I try to do is, rather than just simply say, okay, let's just try and understand how your project works, I also, at the same time, try to understand the impact that it will have on the audience at exactly the same time. And I even do that with feature film as well. I do it with a story. How, whilst I'm talking to somebody about breaking down their story, I'm also saying, so how is the audience thinking at this moment? How do you want them to feel? Now, some people might think, well, that's, that's kind of very commercial. It's like what Americans do when they have these focus groups to work out the ending of a film. But I don't think it's about that at all. If you work with feature film writers, they'll often talk about the beats, the beats of a film. And the beats of the film relate very specifically to the emotional response of the audience to certain moments within the film. Because we are considering the audience all the time when we are creating something. And all I'm trying to do is make that process more explicit. And what I find really interesting is, is that if you can create a space, and clearly what I do is I create a space whereby I literally map it out. Where I actually map out not only, for example, maybe the thing at the foreground here is the project and how the project is working, but also I'm mapping in the different subgroups of the potential audience. And I'm saying, well, how do they relate to this? What is their interrelationship? How, how, how do they feel about these issues? Because by doing that and by kind of creating this enormous ecosystem, then what we have the opportunity of being able to do is actually being able to then be strategic about the way then that we might then deliver the content to them and then have greatest impact if we've decided to take an impact uh, approach to the way that we're creating media. We can still do this if we are taking a form-led approach, but of course if we're taking a form-led approach, then the decision around the particular form, TV series, film, what have you, has been decided first. Whereas if we're taking an impact approach, we're, we're delaying that decision for as long as we possibly can. So I think it's all about transformation. We talk about transformation all the time. We talk about transformation of our characters and stories. We talk about the transformation of our contributors in the documentary, the way that we track that transformation. And we should also be talking about the transformation we should, that's very fascistic, isn't it? We could, we could talk about the transformation of our audiences. And by doing that, I think it brings us closer and it allows us to be more considered and potentially produce stuff that is going to be more relevant and more likely to be seen. And I don't believe that's about dumbing down. I just think it's about consideration. So, I think audience is just as, as complicated as our characters and you can interchange the word character with contributor. So, very basically. When we tell stories, I think what we do is, is we basically look at our character journey and we say, our character comes with a particular backstory. And that backstory basically propels that character towards a particular goal. All right? So when we meet a particular character, we might see that they're going on a particular journey. And then, of course, what happens is, is that something dramatic happens to that person, which in uh, classic storytelling is called the inciting incident. And what the inciting incident does is that it creates a new motive which brings about a new goal. And I think this is just as relevant to documentary making as it would be to feature film. Because we would be looking at a contributor and we'd be trying to understand what is actually driving this person, what is motivating this person. And then what we then do is, is that we then, um, uh, we then try to look for conflict. And we try to understand how conflict somehow impacts on choice, how it creates choice. And of course, by bringing conflict in or by, by understanding conflict, we, we understand 
our, our main character's value system because the way by which they make choices reveals their underlying values and we understand them as a human being. I hope you're kind of agreeing with this, okay? I think it's exactly the same when we talk about our users, about our audience. Our audience don't come to our offerings like blank pieces of paper. They come just as complex as our characters are. They have a backstory. We can ask before, we can, we can say to ourselves, who are they? What are they doing? I can send out these. You can, you can email me and I can send you these slides, so please don't worry if I go very quickly. We can say what interests them and why in relation to our theme. What is their backstory? Where have they come from? What do they know? What have they experienced in relation to the project, to the themes that we're actually trying to deal with? What devices are, are they on and what do they have access to? Again, this is about trying to understand the touch points in relation to the project, the themes that we're actually trying to deal with. What are they looking for? And then we can actually try to understand their goals. What was their goal before we came along? What are the kind of things they were doing? If it's the sports people, maybe they wanted to win awards or they wanted to improve their sporting ability. And of course, the inciting incident, in our audience's case, is us. It's our, it's our offering. Suddenly, we drop this beautiful film on them and we hope that it has an impact. And we say to ourselves, how does it come to them? And was it part of their journey? How easy was it to then to suddenly come across the beautiful film that was made in, in Norway? Where is the touch point? Where is the touch point between our offering and them? And then does this then create a new motive? Does, does this change their attitude, their opinion, their thoughts around the particular subject, around the theme? Uh, and how will they, and, and uh, what, what do they expect to get out of consuming our, our piece of work, and how will they know it? And does that then create a new goal, a new goal to watch all the episodes because they're desperate to find out what happens? Will it be clear to them when they've reached that goal? What can they do when they've reached it? What can they do after they've watched the series? Do they then go online and do something else? Is there a call to action after every single program that says, if you really like this, you can go to the website and you can do something else that's incredible? And that incredible thing relates specifically to the theme and relates to the type of person that they are. Why is this better than what they were doing before you came along? So in a way, what we're trying to do is we're talking about conversion. We're trying to get get children who were doing something and we're trying to get them to do something else, which is to consume our media product. It sounds very commercial, but that's what we're trying to do. Unless, of course, we're just making stuff for ourselves. So we try to understand the conflict. What are they being enticed by? What is something else that's going to take their attention away? Is there anything else that does something similar? So how are they making that choice? Why don't they go back to what they were doing before? So what I'm trying to do here, very complicated slide, of course, but I'm, the point I'm making is, is that I think we as storytellers, as documentary makers, are, are probably very, very skilled at being able to deconstruct and to analyze and to understand the complexity of our contributors within our documentaries. But what we should spend some time doing as well is to also consider that in relation to our audience. And if we can do that at the same time, whilst we're being creative. And we don't just leave it to the last minute and maybe leave it to the sales department team, who I'm, I'm sure are extremely good, but it's a very sort of, it's down, it's very uh, downstream of, the, of the, 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 the concept development phase. 
But if we can bring that thinking, if we can bring people like Selma earlier into our development, really early, even before the point at which we've decided on what platform or the media or channels or whatever that we're going to be working with, I think we're more likely to create beautiful content. We're more likely to unlock our creative abilities and we're more likely to do that with a larger audience and more people will see the beautiful stuff that we've seen today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, we will uh, open up the floor now for questions, comments, input to the discussion. Um, I guess there's one obvious first comment. Salma, do you like to be in early on when you work with documentary filmmakers? Um, yeah, <laughs> so there were many, many thoughts going on while, while we were while you were talking. Um, so we do play around a lot with documentaries. Um, when thinking about audience, uh, we don't even know if Outlook is gonna exist in 10 years because we are moving to a business to consumer business at the moment. This works well and we did a lot of experiments on the digital side for creative documentaries. I'm a little bit lost um, thinking <laughs> about children documentaries because there is this huge language barrier. If I go online with a children documentary, and this is the only way, way how I can um, work directly with, um, with audience, I have to dub. I mean, uh, I was really surprised that like uh, Dutch kids, for example, here at ITVA, they read subtitles in Germany, in Italy, in US, it just wouldn't happen. I, I can't believe, and not even adults are reading subtitles in US. So, um, I mean, maybe we can train the next generation for your OS audience, but yeah. So this is this is the uh, biggest problem at the moment. I mean, this could be a plea to the funding institutions <laughs> that they help um, um, dub dubbings for. I mean, mainly for the the big um, language territories like French or Spanish, Italian, uh, German. Um, maybe there um, can be like a new um, funding scheme for for dub dubbing for children talks, and then we can think about going online directly. I'm, I'm happy to, to try this and to experiment. I'm, I think thinking about audience could be super interesting for theatrical, but this is territorial then. But for thinking about the world, um, yeah, so there is a big language barrier, I guess. Paul, short comment to that? Sure. Um, so my daughter came home one day uh, with her friend Romeo, and he was about, uh, at the time he was nine years old. I live in Denmark. He started speaking to me in, in English. And I, I looked at Romeo and I said, uh, uh, Romeo, you're talking to me in English. He said, yes, I learned it from YouTube. So I think, I think if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say, and it's not, I would say that the industry is trying to make us think that people don't read subtitles in order to maintain their position. I'm sorry, it sounds harsh. Um, the Killing, uh, for, uh, which was a fantastic series, was tucked away on BBC Four in the UK until the, w the, the audience did this really weird thing. They loved it, and then they shifted it, I think, to BBC Two or to BBC One. Why? Because the audience did something that the commissioners did ne never believe that snooty English people would do, which is to read subtitles. So I just, I'm sorry, I just don't believe it. And I think it's, it's something that we have to move away from. We have to move away from this notion that somehow the audience are just not capable of doing stuff because I think they are. Okay, anyone, um, anyone with comments or questions from, from the audience, then we are happy to, uh, to 
to uh, take questions from you, just raise your hand and we'll have a microphone coming to you. No comments from there. Do you want to comment on it, uh, Selma? Or, uh? It's it's very difficult. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I wish it's like that and it's true that um, English is becoming um, the language, the, the one and only through the digital world. Um, but we made the experience that if you talk about masses and then it's a mass appeal, um, then you need a language version, especially in, in some specific markets. So that's our experience, just from the numbers we get. And especially, for example, the German-speaking market, um, subtitled films always perform less in the cinemas than, than dubbed films, which is very, very sad. I mean, and it's, I, I do think that it's going to change. I can also say something. I think it's a really difference between what you do theatrical and what you do on YouTube. Uh, because I see my daughter also, she watched like a whole series of, uh, is a Russian series, Misha Masha, about this bear. And she watched it in, in Russian language and she, she consumed it, you know, she understands everything. And of course, for the young children also, I mean, films and cinematic films, they can, they, they don't need, uh, language i mean they feel and they experiment uh, also experience um through music and feelings so so i think that can work but I, there must be kind of both possibilities um. i want to come back to a, a point that you touched upon anita and also you Salma, because you both talked about quality and production value when you when you talked about the series um how, how, I mean, you could be very cruel and say, is there still a market for this? I mean, we're talking to a generation also who increasingly watch content that are created by people they know. They watch a lot of YouTube, they watch uh, a lot of on, on Instagram and Snapchat, etc. I mean, do, do you still think there will be a room for, for those kind of, of quality projects uh, in the future? Or are we moving more and more to the self-generated content? Or how do you see the market? I, I just see a lot of children who goes to the cinema, of course, if there are films there, and the, and the parents who take them there. And uh, what they see is, I mean, good and Disney and, and all of that, which is really uh, high budget films. And if we want to compete with that, we have to be uh, on the same level. I truly believe, I mean, this is just a very personal, maybe not a market statement, there's always a place for good stories, and it always will be, and if something survives, it's um, the creative mind, it's good storytelling, quality storytelling, and for example, why we moved into kids' talks, and there's also Lisa Lott here in the audience, I mean, we just hired her to develop a kids' documentary strength, so we really want to use our access to the, um, to the creative documentary world and bring those great storytellers, um, directors and um, try to, to um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not easy to, to get them to make um, the children documentaries or family documentaries. Um, the biggest problem at the moment is it's less prestige. And maybe we can change something there in the festival world. I think they're in the mood. But of course, I mean, the award, award situation is different. Um, you cannot be, I mean, I do think you can be um, very nuanced in your storytelling, but of course it's another way to tell your story to kids than to, to an adult audience. So it's less sophisticated, um, but there is place and I, I feel that there is also interest to, to go into this world. And yes, I, I do think there's place for, for good stories. At the, 
he also mentioned it in a way. <laughs> but do you see do you see that market as, as increasing, or since you are now opening a, a documentary uh, strand or a documentary um, department for yes, I mean, yeah, um, my kids, I I have to say that they watch more TV than I did in my childhood. So there is a market, a growing market. Um, we are all consuming a lot of media content and the world is opening up. You have new markets for us, for example, like China, Latin America, Russia. They're very eager to get um, new content. Um, there are new platforms coming up everywhere. So yes, it's a growing market, basically. Paul, you wanted to comment on it? Or? Well, I, I, always, I always find, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be the troublemaker, but I think in, in a way we have to be careful about the way we use this word market because we often, there's a danger that will use the word market, uh, but actually we will mean very different things. And as you rightly say, you know, we're shifting to a B2C uh, market. And so sometimes when we use the word market, we're actually referring to B2B, and sometimes we're referring to B2C. And I think that we need to be uh, clearer in our language sometimes when we talk about things. Otherwise, we just seem to think there's just one big market. And it's, it's fragmenting massively, and, uh, and that fragmentation creates all sorts of problems, but it also creates opportunities. And I really like the point that you made somewhere earlier, which is that actually the biggest problem these days is about, it's about distribution, it's about the mechanism by which you get content to people. And I think that's where the funding bodies could really come in and help, like, like you say. That is the place where, where there's the greatest opportunity. And I think ultimately, one of the mechanisms you could do for that, and this might be contentious, is to move away from project-based funding and to work towards company-based funding so that you emulate the software uh, industry so that there is the slack within the business model to enable companies to innovate in the way by which they distribute content. Because at the moment, they, with project-based funding, there is absolutely no slack in the system for any innovation. So you can go to any conference you like in the world and everybody's talking about how we need to fail fast and innovate and all these things. But if you look at the underlying funding mechanism for companies, it doesn't work because it doesn't exist apart from perhaps slate funding. Funding is based all around projects and when it's based around projects, you, you do have no room, no economy of scale for innovation. And is it bringing in your experience with, uh, with the series? Um, I mean, obviously we saw the slides, it was a complicated production, it was a complicated funding pattern almost. Uh, do you think that, that those patterns, those ways of working with, with the funding could be eased up in order to, to actually improve uh, the conditions for making children's documentaries that can also travel? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a broader kind of uh, from the early beginning that uh, financiers can talk together, you know, like the film institutes in the different countries, uh, that you can build something around it. And uh, of course, I see a lot of interest from from Norway and also from from a lot of other countries in in Europe. And so now I think it's time to really come together and collaborate on an early stage and see also is it possible to change some kind of internal rules or external rules or political system to to make it uh, work and also to have this um, work closely to to uh, um, marketing strategies and also like we talk about with the languages. Um, is there some kind of schemes in, in Europe or international when, where you can actually uh, get funding to make uh, different versions of the film? Because now it's also, the films are not just made for one place. It's, it's, for, it's for theatrical, it's for TV, it's for VOD, it's everywhere. And then they are, 
different needs for these different platforms. Uh, we find too with Dutch documentaries that um, the budgets are uh, tight because uh, sometimes you have a beautiful uh, doc and there's no budget for uh, an English dubbed version. So it's very important to, to have means to make more versions and to make it more international. And one thing that's always very important, of course, with distribution is that you have to explore each window the most. Um, you just had a window to ask questions and it just ran out. So I'm sorry, we are out of time. We, uh, we have to end it here. It, it ended up being a very, very undemocratic uh, discussion, not involving you at all. So we are actually basing the whole seminar on the old transmission model and not being very interactive and not uh, engaging with the audience at all. So um, unfortunately, we have to, to end it here. Before we end totally, I just want to lead you attention to an initiative that I'm very, very proud to be part of, actually. Um, because a year and a half ago, we funded this real young initiative together with Mikey here at IFA. It's us at EDN, and it's the financing forum for kids' content in Sweden. And uh, we're now opening up the call for the second edition. Real Young, as you yeah, probably and hopefully can guess from the title, is about bringing documentaries uh, to young audiences across borders. It's about creating collaboration and uh, also hopefully some really strong and powerful films that can, can cross borders. As I said, we now have the call open for our second edition, so pick up a flyer. Uh, I'm here, Amila is also here in the back, and, and Mikey is here, so you can come and talk to us about Real Young if you have projects in development that you would like to, to, uh, to uh, workshop and, and also meet and network with uh, people from other countries who are doing uh, great documentary stuff for younger audiences. Okay, so much for the commercial break. Uh, we have to end it here. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank and thank you all. Now I really lost my voice. And those who are invited to join the discussion for the roundtables afterwards, there's a small break and we'll be continuing at quarter to five. So if you want to talk further on the discussion, you're more than welcome to come back for the roundtables. Thank you, Ova. Thank you all.